Folks, if you want to open your Bibles with me this morning, uh, we are still in the book of Titus, working through uh, Titus, God willing, by the end of this month, uh, we will have worked our way through the book. Not a massive book, uh, but one that is significant and, and mighty, and one that I hope has been a challenge and a blessing to us. Uh, this morning in the small print, it's 998 uh, of the small print, and if you've got the large print Bibles there, uh, we are on page 1,272. 998 and 1,272. So Paul writing to Titus, a, a young pastor on Crete, uh, a pastor who was experiencing difficulties because, according to Paul, uh, even one of the Cretans' own prophets said that the Cretans are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So you can imagine what it was like to to be a Christian and to minister on such an island. Uh, but Paul challenges Titus and, and those in the church there uh, to live for Christ, to attend to the sound doctrine that they were hearing, and to remember uh, every good work that they could be involved in. We are in chapter 3 this morning, uh, the first 11 verses, and this is the Word of God. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversy, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Amen. And we thank God today for his word. As we meet here this morning, it is the 9th of February, 2020. Christmas is but a distant dream. And we are just a few days from the most romantic day of the year, and I'm sure some of you are terribly excited about Valentine's and what you will get up to and where you will go for your dinner and all the rest of it. But let me say something to you this morning that has been said to me quite a lot this week. There's a queer stretch in the night. Have you heard that this week? Because I certainly have. I've heard that more times than I could count. If you gave me a pound for every time I've heard it, I would have about four pounds this morning. 
There's a queer stretch in the night. And there is. There is, certainly. And I know for, for some of you, that gets you all excited because you start thinking about the summer holidays. But as a man who still goes to Slimming World every week, all it causes me to think is, oh no, it's about 20-odd weeks until I go to Portrush and I'm still not beach body ready. I've only to lose about a stone a week from now until then and I will hit my target. Perhaps it's possible, perhaps not, but I realize that I am not the man that I want to be. And there's a queer stretch in the nights. Time is running out. Folks, regardless of whether or not that change will ever happen, I want to remind you and share with you this morning about a change that has already happened. A change that is dramatic and wonderful and extraordinary, and a change that produces in us good fruit. A work of the Holy Spirit in us produces good fruit, like obedience and submission to ruling authority. What is that change? Paul tells us here in Titus chapter 3, the decisive change, he says, is that in verse 4, the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, has appeared. It was exactly that that we read at the beginning of the service in Galatians where Paul says a similar thing. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those that were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The same decisive change described in two different letters of the Apostle Paul, but here is the dramatic difference. Yes, it's February the 9th, and yes, there's a choir stretch in the nights, and yes, we better get up off our backsides if we're going to get into that size 12 dress for the big wedding that's coming up. But the greatest change of all as relevant in February as it is in December and everywhere in between, the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior has appeared. And in verse 5 and 3, wonderful words, He saved us. He saved us. My brothers and sisters, there is the change. There is our hope. Whether we're longing for an end of the storms and, and we're counting the minutes to Easter and end of the summer, There is our hope. There is the real change. There is the dramatic, significant, extraordinary difference in our lives that God has appeared, his gospel has unfolded, and he saved us. He redeemed our lives from the pit. And it wasn't, he says here in his word, because of works done by us in righteousness. We were not saved because we were nice to the police. We were not saved because we did other good things. We were not saved because we were members of a local church. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but by according to his own mercy. If we are saved today, if those three words, he saved us, have any significance in our lives, it is not because of us and our goodness, but because of the grace and kindness and loving mercy of our God. Even when we were dead in sin. He loved us. Even when we were lost and gone, he loved us and and laid down his life for us. It was a long time ago now, but once upon a time, I went to see my now father-in-law to ask for Jenny's hand in marriage. It was an embarrassing night. I couldn't find him in his house. It's not that it's a big house. He just, I think, was on the run and didn't want to sit down with me. But eventually I got him in the front room And if you know my father-in-law, and Dougie, this is the moment you turn off the recording. 
If you know my father-in-law, he's a wee bit like me. Why say five words when you can say 105 words? And so for the next two hours, he talked to me about marriage and the ups and the downs. Uh, he talked to me about how uh, Elaine and him were happy that I was marrying Jenny. I wasn't a Baptist, he said. He said those words. You're not a Baptist, but oh, we're happy enough that you're a Presbyterian. And I got this whole big lecture. And finally, I got his permission to seek Jenny's hand in marriage. But here's the reality. If Leonard Morrison knew what I was really like, the way my God knows what I'm really like, he would never have allowed me to marry his daughter. Never in a million years. And yet, as we come up to Valentine's Day and as we think of that word love once again, I am reminded of how a sinful wretch like me is love. God knows more about me than my father-in-law ever could, and he loved me still the same. He laid down his life for me even when I was dead in my sin. He saved me. Not because of works done by righteousness, but according to his mercy and by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Here is the supernatural aspect of our Christian life. If you are a Christian, it wasn't because back in 1984, Norman Duncan persuaded you to be a Christian. If you are a Christian, it isn't because you are better than the people in this town and, and you have your eyes open and you've realized that, that Christianity is pretty good. If you are a Christian, it is through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. God has done a significant and spiritual work in your life. He saved you. He saved you. Do you see this transformation? We take it for granted in this part of the country. Don't we? we? We all the time hear and we talk about being saved. Oh, I'm a saved man. How long have you been saved? Oh, I've been saved 30 years. He needs to be saved. She needs the gospel. She needs to be saved. We talk about this all the time. And yet in a couple of verses here in Titus chapter 3, we see the, the glory of it and the scale of it. The gospel has been poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, verse 6 and verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Here is our adoption into the family of God. We are heirs of salvation. One day we will stand in glory. We will sing the praises of Jesus forevermore. This is what waits for us. Long after we have stopped worrying about borders and elections and all that other stuff, we will be with Jesus forever. We have been saved for this purpose, as a people for his own possession. This is ours through faith in Christ. And my brothers and sisters, I do not know how you are feeling this morning. Maybe you are delighted that there is a queer change in the nights. Or maybe you're feeling your, your lumpy bits and you're wondering, can I get this sorted out by the time 20 weeks comes? And I'm lying down in Newcastle Beach, sunbathing. Can I get into that bikini I bought or that swimsuit? I don't know how you're feeling. I really don't. But if you are faithful in Christ, if you're a man and woman of faith, if you take that title saved Christian, here's what's happened to you. Here's this extraordinary, miraculous work where you are now justified, declared righteous in the sight of God through your faith in the perfect Lord Jesus Christ. He saved us. Three hugely significant words. He saved us. And he didn't save a bunch of really good people. Paul tells us in verse 3 what we once were. He says, we ourselves were once 
foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. We passed our days in malice and envy. We were hated by others and we hated one another. This is the picture of every one of us before we came to Christ. We were not a bunch of wonderful people where God looks and says, well, well, that bunch over there aren't very good, but I'm going to save this crowd. These guys are nice. These guys are special. Not a bit of it. Paul says, this is what we were. Once upon a time, we were just like everybody else. Our days were filled with malice and envy. Our days were filled hating one another, and we were hated in return. This is what we were like. But what happened? He saved us. That's what happened. The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us. Not because of good works. He saved us by His grace. Not because we were wonderful, but because we have trusted in the finished work of Christ. He saved us. And my friends, this is true. If we are in Jesus today, this is true. And if this is true, then how shall we respond? I've made this point numerous times as we've preached through Titus and that when Paul says that, for example, in chapter 2, verse 2, that older men are to be sober-minded, that's not the gospel. The gospel isn't to you older men saying, be sober-minded and you will be saved. That's not the gospel. And likewise, when Paul says in chapter 2 and verse 3, older women are to be reverent in behavior, again, that's not the the gospel. The gospel does not call on women to be reverent in behavior. That's not it. When we read these verses, when we hear the apostle speaking in this way, he is speaking about our response to the gospel. The gospel is that Christ Jesus has died for sinners, for those men and women like us, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Christ Jesus died for men and women like that. His sacrifice at Calvary was once and for all and full and righteous and complete, never to be repeated. And Jesus rose again from the tomb three days later. He stood again. He lives forevermore. And he offers salvation to all who will believe. There's the gospel, and your response to it today, if you're not a Christian, is to believe it and to receive Christ by faith. But if you are already there, if you are a believer, then Titus looks you in the eye and says, here's how you are to respond to this good news. On Monday morning when you wake up knowing the truth, he saved me. How do I respond to that good and wonderful news? On Wednesday afternoon, when Officer Pullover gets you outside Carlisle's garage, how are you to respond to the good news that he saved me? On Friday night, when the phone rings and it's bad news from someone, and you just want to scream and shout and swear, how are you to respond to the truth that Jesus has saved you? Titus tells us exactly that. As Paul writes to him, reminding him about what you once were and what Christ has done and the significant change that has been worked supernaturally by the Holy Spirit in believers' lives. We are, says Paul, according to verse 8, to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things, he says, are excellent and profitable for people. 
if we know the reality of those three words that he saved us, he saved me, how are we to be responding to this truth? By being zealous for good works, devoted to good works. The good works are not the gospel, they are the response to the gospel. We are to be men and women who who those words transform us every day. He saved me, I am saved. How therefore will I respond to be zealous in good works? Whether I live out my days in Balahinch or whether I I climb the ladder and I move to a big house somewhere or, or whether I sail away across the sea and never come back, wherever I lay my hat, wherever I put down my head in response to the good news that Jesus has saved me, I am zealous for good works. I am passionate about doing good works for the sake of Jesus my King. Here is Paul's challenge to us. In light of the gospel, in light of it working salvation in us, we do good works. We devote our lives to them for the sake and for the further glory of Jesus. And we see what some of those look like. Paul takes us in verse 1 and 2 and reminds us that our good works in response to the gospel are these. We are to be submissive to rulers and authority. And my brothers and sisters, that is a mighty challenge for us because when it comes down to it, probably all of us in the past couple of months have said particularly unpleasant things about Boris Johnson, our Prime Minister. Or some of us, even in the past days, as we have watched Stormont fighting and arguing again, maybe we have said deeply unpleasant things about those up on the hill. Or maybe you have met Officer Pullover the way I did. And you know his friend, Officer Grumpy, behind the desk. And, and you've responded to those individuals with the last word out of your mouth. Paul reminds us, he saved us. And therefore, we are to be submissive to the rulers and authorities that God has placed over us. We are to be obedient, he says in verse 1. We are to be ready for every good work. Here is the challenge for Christian men and women in Balnehinch. Here is what our lives look like on a Tuesday and a Thursday and and a Sunday afternoon. Here is how we respond to the good news of the gospel. And it gets even more challenging because whilst a a police officer might pull us over once in a blue moon, well, verse 2 comes along and Paul challenges us to speak evil of no one. That's not easy. Sure it's not. You meet your sister for coffee and dobbies once a week. And part of what you talk about is you have a good old chinwag and you put the world to rights and, and maybe you say deeply unpleasant things about your woman. And maybe in your wee heart you think she believes it or she deserves it because after all she has done things on you and your family and, and she deserves the sharp end of your tongue. The Apostle Paul says to us, those men and women who have been saved in response to this gospel that we are to speak evil of no one. And you say, well, Scott, it's only a wee bit of gossip. It's only a wee bit of gossip. It's not quite speaking evil. My friends, put yourself on the other side of the gossip. Would you honestly like to be the subject of someone's conversation in Dobies? Would you like to be the subject of someone's conversation in the church car park? Running you down, questioning your motives, ascribing to you the, the worst possible intention? If you wouldn't want that, and if you are someone who has been saved, the apostle speaks directly to you and says, speak evil of no one. And we wonder, well, well, where's the example for this? Well, we see it in Christ, don't we? Standing there, 
in front of Pilate, hearing people lie about him, hearing their stories falling apart and not agreeing, having individuals walk below the cross as he is breathing his last, mocking him and pouring out scorn upon him. You saved others, now save yourself. And how did Jesus respond? He spoke evil of no one. No gossip, no slander. And here is the challenge for believers. My friends, if your struggle in your Christian life is controlling your tongue, then know that the scriptures understand. We're studying the book of James on Thursday nights, and and the book of James is clear that the tongue is a fire. It is a fire. It is so easy to let it run and to tear down and to slander and to seep poison out into the community. Paul says, speak evil of no one. You have been saved. Speak evil of no one. Avoid fighting and quarreling. That's not the response to the gospel. Avoid arguing and uh, and going over things and and whispering and slandering. In fact, instead, be gentle, says Paul. Show perfect courtesy towards all people. Here is how we respond to the good news, this, this supernatural work that the Lord has done in our lives. And I know that this is not easy. I know that this is a a great challenge for us. If we are pulled over by uh, PSNI today, we can smile and nod and we remember what was said in church. And yes, we'll we'll certainly not run them down or talk bad off them. But but then when we get home, maybe we, we spend 10 minutes talking about the person that we saw at church and who do they think they are. We speak evil of no one. We avoid the fights that can so often blight fellowship. We are gentle to one another. We are courteous to one another. And that's not a you first, open the door kind of courtesy. That's speaking well of one another. That is assuming uh, the best intentions and motives of one another. That is loving one another and treating one another as we would want to be treated ourselves. This is where the gospel hits the road. This is where the challenge comes. Because many of us could stick our hands in the air and say, yep, I'm saved. But many of us would struggle to put our hands in the air to say, yep, I control my tongue. I speak evil of no one. I run the other way from quarrels. But here is the challenge. And Paul says to Titus, remind them of this, as verse 1 begins. So this isn't new to the people here in Crete. This isn't a new teaching. He says, remind them. I've told them before. You've told them before. Remind them again. And you get the impression that we need that reminder because because this is where our Christianity often falls flat in its face. When we're sitting in the staff room and and we're all gossiping and laughing and mocking the people uh, who aren't there and we're part of it and smiling along, it's easy to be like that. It's much more difficult to stand up and to leave that conversation. None of us want to be the odd one out. I get that. None of us want to be seen as the the wee holy Joe in the corner. I understand that. But something significant has happened to us that isn't just like, you know, an election down south and a new Taoiseach. The greatest and most significant thing of all is not the stretch in the nights, but the fact that he saved us. He saved us. And we're not left as we were, 
not foolish and disobedient, etc., etc., as verse 3 speaks, not left as we were, but justified, sanctified, on our way to glory. And while we wait, we are to respond to the gospel with graciousness and, and peace and love and kindness to those around us, even and especially to those who we in our bones don't think deserve it. He saved us, says Paul. And everything is different as a result. He continues as the chapter comes to a close. He says in verse 9 that we are to avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Often in churches we can get ourselves tied up in all sorts of different things. Often in churches we argue and fight about stuff that is not the main thing. We argue and disagree about controversies of, of Scripture, differences of opinion on interpretation of secondary issues. Genealogies, and you can imagine uh, the Jewish believers in this day, for, for Jews, their genealogy was important. Where they had come from was of vital importance. And the scholars and commentators here would state that, that perhaps they're arguing and fighting over the genealogy of Christ. Is anybody related to Jesus in our fellowship? That's important, isn't it? Paul says, no. Avoid these things. Keep the main thing the main thing. And of course, my brothers and sisters, there will be a time for debate and discussion. There will be a time for, for brothers and sisters in Christ to argue over Scripture only when those things are of vital importance. And so when we hear the gospel being redefined, when we hear that God saves everybody, we call that universalism, it is important to stand for truth. But in this verse, Paul is not speaking about the grand issues of our day. He is speaking about the quarrels about the law, the, the minutiae, the details, the stuff that only will lead to hot conversations, but not very much light. These things, he says, are unprofitable and worthless. And so when we speak and when we discuss and when we debate, we are to seek the profitable things. We are to speak to the, the worth worthful things, the things that have a weight and a value and a significance and, and can build one another up. When we speak in about five minutes over a cup of coffee out there, may we speak about things that will encourage and have, have weight and purpose in the life of the church. Paul urges us to avoid the foolish controversies that will often divide fellowship. And finally, Paul challenges us, folks, and I think this is an incredible challenge. In verses 10 and 11, to avoid someone in the fellowship who stirs up division. As for a person, he says in verse 10, who, who stirs up division in the fellowship, warn him once and then twice and then have nothing more to do with that individual. Wow. What a challenge. There isn't a church in Balnehinch. There isn't a church in this land who, who has never gone through days where there have been individuals or, or a whole section of the fellowship that have stirred up division, who spend their days whispering and slandering in church car parks, who, who send texts and phone calls and emails and, and stir up division, constantly stirring it up. The Lord here in his word says, how do we deal with such an individual? One warning. A warning. A warning that says, enough. Enough. 
He has saved you. Enough of this division. It gives that individual a time for repentance and and restoration. But if it continues, the Lord tells us in his word, then we are to warn that individual twice. Enough. The Lord has saved you. The Lord has saved me. The Lord has saved us. Therefore, there's to be no division in this body. Enough. Again, more time is given for grace and mercy to abound and for that individual to once again come to a place of repentance. But if that first and second warning doesn't do it, then that individual has to be, in a way, shunned. We don't do this, do we? We often will just roll our eyes and say, that's just the way he is. That's just your woman. Never worry about it. But, But the Lord takes seriously the health of his bride. He says if there are individuals in the body stirring up the vision and they will not listen and they will not repent and they will not stop their slander and accusation and troublemaking, then understand, says the word of God, that that person is a warped and sinful person and indeed is self-condemned. That individual is not to be welcomed and delighted in, but that individual is to be avoided hoping and praying that that individual will come to a place of repentance. You see, friends, the church is not a we-pretend organization on planet Earth. The church is not like when you go to a meeting of the Lodge. The church is not a body like when you go to meet your friends down at the Women's Institute. The church is not like those fancy nights to put on at Dobies. Women's night at Dobies. Men's night at Dobies. Oudal's night at Dobies. The church is not like that. The church is the body of Christ. Jesus is the head of the body. And the church is defined by those three words in verse 5. He saved us. And if that is true, And if those words have the significance that I believe that they do, I don't think I'm over-egging that particular pudding. I have not read more significant words than that this week. He saved us. If that is true, then our response to the gospel and to this word is to, to live in light of that truth. And to have higher expectations for the body of the church. To have higher expectations of one another. Not to spend our days in gossip and slander and foolish controversies and tolerating those who stir up division. But standing firm for the truth of the gospel and responding to it every single day as a people who are zealous for good works. And I know as I preach this, you might think, Scott, that's just a pipe dream. Oh, that's just, okay, that's the perfect church. And, and no church is perfect. I know those things are true. I know there is no perfect church. Where there is one person, the church is not perfect. I know that, and I understand that. But as we look into the next 10 years, as we plot a course to 2030, as we ask under the Word of God, what sort of church will we be? May we be a Titus 3 sort of church. A church that wants to have the difficult conversations when a brother or sister in Christ just will not listen. A church that wants to be zealous for good works. A church that is not angry with the police when we're caught doing 35 and a 30. A church that prays regularly for our politicians, even if we don't like them and didn't vote for them. 
a church that is zealous for good works inside and outside the body. I know it sounds like a pipe dream, but I am sure you, like me, would want to be part of a church like that. I'm sure you would. And friends, I'm not saying we're we're starting from scratch on this. I don't believe that. I believe as a fellowship we have much to be thankful to the Lord for. But if we ever think that we have arrived, that we've got every box ticked, then we fool ourselves. And so I pray that this word today will be a word in season and a word and challenge for us to be the church that the Lord intends and to be the church that has been transformed by the gospel and responds to it every single day. Christ has saved us. And so may our spirit-driven, equipped and enthused lives, tongues and works reflect the beauty of this gospel. There's nothing more important. The biggest thing you have heard this week does not involve elections or Brexits or borders or even that stuff your mother was telling you. The most significant thing you have heard has come from my imperfect lips. He saved us. He saved us. He saved us. Amen. And we thank God today for his word.